Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Vanished ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. I know my great-grandmother left this earth wanting to know what happened to her daughter. Who knows if she's alive? She could have been at my great-grandmother's funeral, and we don't know. And it's like she could have been at Linda's funeral, and we didn't know. It's like she I could walk past her, and I don't know what she looks like or who she is. We need answers. We need answers from the police department. We need answers from whoever is still alive from, you know, the ATF. We need those answers. And I, I feel like I'm not stopping until I get those answers. Every week, we pass by the stories that take up your news feeds and bring you the cases of people who are missing and haven't been given the attention their story is due. But what if we told you a story about a young woman of color in Omaha, Nebraska, who was only 12 years old when she was named in a 1970 federal ATF affidavit as having reportedly seen a large collection of foreign-made firearms and explosives, which she described in intricate detail. How would a young preteen know so much about weapons and explosives and to call the ATF instead of 911 or her local police department? How would she know that she would vanish just two years later and be almost entirely erased from existence for the next 50 years? Well, she didn't, and that's why we're sharing her never-before-told story with you, which, like many we've shared, are true events that really are stranger than fiction. I'm Marissa, and from Wondery, this is episode 313 of The Vanished, Mary Alice Clark's story. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries, and thrillers, and more. And my favorite part is that members can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. The Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere, while traveling, working out, doing chores, you decide. I carve out a little bit of time each evening to listen while I'm cooking, and right now I'm listening to Lay Them to Rest by Laura Norton. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash MIA or text MIA to 500-500. That's audible.com slash MIA or text MIA to 500-500. If you look up Mary Alice Clark online, you won't find much about her, but you will come across some other names that pop up continuously and are the only real tie anyone can find to Mary Alice. Mary Alice was just barely 14 at the time of her disappearance, having turned 14 in May, three months before she vanished. By all accounts, she was a typical teenage girl. She enjoyed the company of her siblings and extended relatives. She had friends she liked to spend time with and was looking forward to the upcoming 8th grade school year. There isn't much more we know about Mary Alice, but she sounded to us like any teen growing up in a large family. The truth is, if you choose to believe what we're going to share with you in today's story, Mary Alice's life in the years leading up to her disappearance was far from normal, and almost beyond being believable. Every week we search for the truth, even when it's buried in newspaper archives, police records, or simply in the memories of family members. There are still many gaps in the story of her life and disappearance, 
but we've researched every detail we can find in order to tell her story, one so deserving of being shared after being hidden away for so long. In order for us to share with you what happened to her, we have to take a look at what was taking place in Omaha during the 1960s and 1970s, the time period when Mary Alice was growing up. We spoke with our cousin Dennis, who was close in age to Mary Alice, and who had his own experiences during this time. Dennis gave us a glimpse of what was taking place. I'm two years older than she is, and went to the same um, uh, junior high school as well. Things were real tense around here because we were still, I wouldn't say that North Omaha ever was in a rebuilding process, but due to the riots of the 60s or late 60s, 68, 69, there was never, ever any attempt to rebuild the area. What would happen in this town was, I wouldn't say unusual because I think it was happening in many of the other states where there were riots. There was also uh, killings and deaths and a lot of mistakes, not only by the police department, but I think that in many cases, some of the communities were, weren't being advised properly in terms of how do you do a peaceful protest. I remember a couple people who were affiliated with the Black Panther organization. I, too, was in um, some cases as a young 16, 17-year-old, I was affiliated to a certain degree. We needed to understand more about the history of what Dennis was talking about, so we did some research. In 1966, a local newspaper published an article about the group called the Black Panthers, referring to them as a gang. While characterization of these groups as gangs at the time was common in the media, organizations like the Black Panthers were founded on the mission of providing checks and balances to the rampant police brutality that continued long after the civil rights movement. In addition to providing a community oversight aspect, the Black Panthers also did compelling work with young people, fought for equality in schools and other environments, and engaged in mentoring programs. Though federal laws have been passed establishing equal rights for all, that was not the reality for the Black population in many cities, including Omaha. Dennis told us what he remembers about this time and what his perspective on all of this was, including his unique experiences that altered the course of his own life. During the time of Mary Alice's disappearance, the city of Omaha had went probably bankrupt overnight because there was a closing of your major industry here to where over 125,000 people was out of work almost overnight around here. You had Swiss, Wilson, Cudahy, Armour. You had all those packing plants, those meat packing plants that closed in the 60s. So economically depressed city as well. It was very difficult to find jobs. And my father had worked for Swiss as an engineer for 30 years. And one day he came home and he was out of work. However, we, our family had some opportunities to either move to Stockton. However, my father ended up finding a job with Omaha Public School to where we were able to sustain and stay here in the Omaha area. But many families had to move out uh, of the, the area to continue with some form of employment or, or income generating occupation. So, yeah, it was pretty tough here. 
And at that time, there was there was a lot of distrust with the Omaha Police Department. I had friends that would be picked up, put in jail, found hung the next day. It wasn't an exciting time around here. So we lived approximately three to four blocks away from each other. And at the time that uh, Mary Alice disappeared, I had just been allowed to move back to Omaha because in 1968, from the Vivian Strong riots and the riots that we had when George Wallace was running for president, I attended a what I thought was going to be a peaceful rally in downtown Omaha. And many of the people who were there in protest of George Wallace in 1968 were badly beaten, let's say it like that, by George Wallace supporters as well as them having uh, been accompanied by the Omaha Police Department. The next day, and somehow or another, the Omaha World Herald newspaper elected to place me on front page of the paper as a uh, militant who was inciting a riot against a presidential candidate. My father, along with Mary Alice's sister, Betty, they both worked for Omaha Public Schools at the time. And uh, my father was in charge of buildings and grounds and training of all of the engineer staff who maintained the, the, the public schools. He was pressured to apply pressure on me to whip me into shape because your son shouldn't be out protesting. And you, you got to whip him into shape. My father's recourse was you have to make a decision to save the family. So I was shipped off to Los Angeles, California to live with my father's brother. To add some context to the events you just heard Dennis discuss, the Vivian Strong riots and protests in 1969 were due to the deep unrest within the community of Omaha that had already seen much chaos throughout the community the year before when citizens protested the presidential candidacy of George Wallace, a politician who was in favor of segregation. Vivian was 14 years old at the time of her murder, the same age Mary Alice was when she vanished. Vivian was shot in the head by a police officer without any warning or threat while she was practicing dance moves with some of her friends. Her senseless murder caused the community uprising to take on a whole new level of outrage and days of riots followed as people called for the police to answer for her death and charge the officer with her murder. In August of 1972, the Clark family lived in Omaha, Nebraska. Mary Clark had been widowed in 1967 when her husband Ed, who had served in World War II, passed away from long-term health conditions and ultimately a heart attack. The couple had six children together, Betty, Faye, Vicky, Linda, who also went by April, Ed, and Mary Alice. Mary Clark was a talented seamstress who established herself in well-known department stores. Dennis told us what he remembers about the family and how close-knit they were, even when he was still in California. In the interim, when we would have 
holiday breaks, I would always come home. And of course, I would either see Vicky, Linda, or my cousin Betty, who lived very close to my grandparents. As a matter of fact, our families pretty much all lived on the same streets in, in many, many cases. So I would spend time with Vicky and uh, Mary Alice and Ed and whenever I could. Very, very close then, as well as very close today, where most of us keep in contact. We all grew up in a place that was called Plum Nelly here in Omaha, Nebraska. It was um, part of the city that seemingly was unincorporated. And when I say that, it was pretty much in the heart of the city, but all the roads were still dirt. And on a rainy day, you better not drive your car up the, up the hill or in the area. Mary Alice, Vicki, oh, we all, our family, we used to have oh, a couple picnics every year. So we always were in, in communication. And as I knew that Mary Alice was beginning to date uh, Dwayne, me also growing up with the Peak family, because we all came from the same neighborhood, I always knew what they were kind of up to. In 1970, uh, I was on tour with the Omaha Community Playhouse and Dwayne Peake's brother, Maurice Peake. We often think of the 1970s as a simpler time, when children were free to come and go throughout their neighborhoods, often to be found playing with friends nearby. But there was a growing turmoil and disruption caused by the blatant inequalities among the residents of Omaha that had been brewing for a number of years. The late 1960s and early 1970s were tense in Omaha, as well as many other cities across the United States, as the civil rights movement saw many of the same protests and political unrest that we've experienced in recent years. But Mary Alice wasn't protesting or participating in those groups. Her exposure to them was indirectly through her relatives and neighbors at the most. She was a teenage girl with a large family who loved her. Mary Alice was a unique victim of the events in Omaha at the time. Did she even have contact with the ATF? Even today, how many 12-year-olds would know who the ATF is, how to reach them, or what to say? And would they take information from a preteen seriously? You heard Dennis mention several names that are important to this story and dominate any news or research we were able to find related to Mary Alice. There were two young men that the Clark children knew from the neighborhood they grew up in, Ed Poindexter and David Rice, who you may hear referred to as Mondo, as he has since changed his name. There's also a younger man named Dwayne Peake. According to court documents, Ed Poindexter and David Rice were leaders in a group called the National Committee to Combat Fascism, which was loosely affiliated with the Black Panthers. Today, Ed Poindexter is in prison for the event we're about to share with you, and David Rice died in prison, both having been sentenced to life after a police officer was killed when a bomb detonated in a house in the neighborhood where the Clarks lived. Dwayne Peake managed to escape serving any prison time, but was initially charged in connection to the explosion. Before we tell you the story behind this strange incident, we would like to highlight something important to us. We're not qualified to comment on the guilt or innocence of anyone in this story, but the convictions of Ed Poindexter and David Rice remain controversial to this day. We want to keep Mary Alice a center focus of this episode, because this is ultimately her story, 
So when we talked to Dennis, this is what he told us about how the Clark family was acquainted with Ed and David. I, to this day, never knew what the real relationship was of uh, Dwayne, Mary Alice, with Ed Poindexter and David Rice, because they were much, much younger than those two individuals, because I was much younger than them as well. And uh, David Rice's brother and I are very good friends, too. All I know is one day it was said, oh, the police have got Mondo and Ed. And Dwayne Peak was the one that they got down there testifying against him. He had evidence. And I knew that my cousin was dating him. So how did Ed Poindexter and David Rice end up in prison for an explosion in a vacant house that left a police officer dead? And how did Mary Alice tie into this story? Well, that in and of itself is truly a mystery. But we obtained a copy of an ATF affidavit filed with the federal court for the District of Nebraska on July 20th, 1970. And we're going to share some parts of it with you. One thing we noticed right away is that the plaintiff named in the affidavit is the federal government, which is to be expected. But the defendant is listed as two-story white-framed dwelling on 3508 North 24th Street, Omaha, Nebraska. Can a house be a defendant? We certainly have never seen that before. The affidavit reads that the special investigator with the ATF swears to the following. That on July 15, 1970, Affiant interviewed Mary Ellis Clark, a Negro woman whose address is in Omaha, Nebraska. That Miss Clark said she had a sister named Linda, who was a member of the Black Panther Party, being 22 years of age and being a girlfriend of Ed Poindexter, who is known to Affiant as a prominent member of the Omaha group, sometimes known as the Black Panthers, or the United Front Against Fascism, or the United Coalition Against Fascism. Miss Clark stated she had been going to the Black Panther headquarters for four or five months, and being nearby, and it being the place where her sister often visited. Within recent weeks, she saw ten boxes that she observed to contain machine guns. She saw six more or less machine guns in each box, with three boxes in a stack and one box standing in a corner. The markings had been scraped off all of the boxes. Miss Clark said the guns were black and brown in color, with a round thing in the middle with straps. Things you look through, and a lampshade-shaped thing at the end of the barrel. She said that if they were set down, they would stand upright and would not fall over. She drew a picture of these guns for a fiant, and quite accurately pictured a machine gun a fiant is familiar with, of Russian manufacturer, having all the features described by Miss Clark. She said she had seen the guns in the basement of the above-described premises and had seen them fired there. She said the bullets all seemed to go off at once. Miss Clark said in recent weeks she had only seen dynamite in a box, that there were 15 more or less bundles of 12 sticks in a bundle wrapped with cord or wire, that the sticks were about 12 inches long and one inch in diameter and brown in color. The statements made in this affidavit seem completely impossible to us. Mary Alice had just turned 12 in May of 1970. 
And in July, the ATF says that she was able to describe weapons of war in detail, and she distinctly remembered how many sticks of dynamite there were. But if that seems unlikely, listen to what comes next. Ms. Clark said she knows Ed Poindexter, David Rice, and others to be members of the Black Panther organization. She said she recently saw other members put together a bomb of dynamite, which they placed in a wooden box, which in turn was placed in a cardboard box, and that all of these people worked on the bomb. Ms. Clark said she saw a picture of a room where the bomb was supposed to have been planted, showing the bomb in place, and that the bomb was in the corner of the room, and that the room also had in it a cabinet, table, and chair, that the picture was shown to her by the makers of the bomb. The affidavit ends with this request for a search warrant. The foregoing constitutes affiance probable cause to believe that there is concealed contraband, to wit, machine guns and dynamite possessed in violation of the Gun Control Act of 1968, upon the above described premises. Unbelievably, or maybe not in this case, the search warrant was initially granted. However, the FBI notified the Department of Justice that the affidavit had been fabricated based on their own intelligence, and the U.S. Attorney's Office quashed the warrant before the search was executed. We still don't know how the ATF allegedly came into contact with Mary Alice, or misspelled her name repeatedly as Mary Ellis. We don't know if she contacted them or they contacted her, or if they ever talked to her at all. Did someone else use her name? The quashing of the warrant should have been the end of this story, but it wasn't. And on August 17, 1970, in the early morning hours, a call was made to 911 in Omaha. The caller said that they had heard a woman being dragged, screaming, into a vacant house. When officers responded, a suitcase filled with bombs exploded, killing the officer and destroying a sizable portion of the house. We also spoke to Mary Alice's brother, Ed, and he said that he knew the house where the explosion happened well, along with the people who were named in the affidavit but didn't remember them being violent or trying to pick a fight with the police. We could see the back of there. It was like a duplex. It wasn't, a, you know, it was a row of duplexes on the main thoroughfare, which we've been 24th Street. We stood on our front porch and looked between the house, the house, the garages on the east side of the street. You could see the back of their house, the back of their duplex. Oh, just about everybody kind of in the neighborhood kind of, freaking around there, you know, sit around and talk with them and stuff. I mean, I mean, it, w- it was never anything, you know, they was trying to recruit anybody or anything like that, you know, which was the Black Panther Party at the time. And uh, they was constantly harassed, you know. I mean, even with other people that wasn't in, the, in, in their party was harassed just for, you know, hanging around there. Me and my friend, we used to sit on the corner there, probably about three duplexes away. From there, and the police would just come by there and shine their light and run up on their porch and steal their flags and stuff, all kinds of, you know, nonsense. Stuff you would expect out of a teenager, some young teenagers and something like that. I mean, they never caused no problem in the in the neighborhood, in the city that I really know of until uh, the year that uh, the police officer got blown up in the house in North Omaha there. You know, first thing they did was blame it on them. They were the uh, Black Panther Party. They went by the NCFF, I believe it was, the abbreviation, the National Committee to Combat Fascism. Or 
I mean, I, I, they they never, to my knowledge, they never brandished any firearms or nothing like that, you know, and uh, they never tried to get you to go against the police or nothing like that or any any law enforcement, nothing like that, that I know of. And, you know, I was pretty much around there every day. Even my mom would go around there sometimes. And one of my sisters was dating one of the guys there at the time. And uh, that's kind of how we started, uh, me and my sister. That's how we kind of started going going over there, you know. We asked Dennis what he knew about these events. My only involvement with the Black Panthers was that in Los Angeles, the San Bernardino County area, I helped them with their breakfast program. They never talked about violence. They only talked about the Second Amendment a lot of times and how the Second Amendment in certain communities actually helped the Black community because it allowed them to, in a sense, police their own community. And I know at that time the Panthers were engaged in, oh, several conflicts with United Soul, as well as the FBI, and that was Ron Karinga's group, uh, United Soul, to where the big battle on the campus of UCLA, the University of California, Los Angeles, where individuals were killed in a battle with the Black Panthers and United Soul. But getting back to Omaha, I oftentimes, because I lived in such close proximity to Ed Poindexter, I worked at a, a hotel here, a Holiday Inn, after school. And, but every night that I would get off and the bus would stop running at certain points uh, after 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, I would have to walk home. The police invariably would sit and wait for me, knowing that I wasn't Ed Poindexter. But they always said that I looked and favored him, and we were always the same height and so on and so forth. So my mother oftentimes would have to come down to the Omaha police station and pick me up uh, 1, 2 o'clock. And I know Mary Alice, Dwayne, and I think that at that time we were kind of fed up with the way that things were around here. It was just we were protesting unfavorable treatment. Getting back to that, that was my biggest question and concern is because I knew at that time there was another national group in Omaha, and I think they were called the Weather Underground. And somehow or another, it was said that Ed and David had made some inroads with them and that they actually were the ones who manufactured the bomb. Now, that was grapevine, but I think there might be some validity to that. But getting back to the planning of, of the bomb, I just don't know how the Omaha police was ever, ever able to conclude that it was Dwayne. Her involvement, from what I understand, had nothing to do with placing the suitcase in the vacant house. She was just dating Dwayne. Mary Alice enjoyed hanging out with her older siblings, especially her sister, Linda. Dennis told us that this caused some problems for Mary Alice and their mother, Mary's ability to keep a close eye on her youngest daughter. Linda's passed, and, and she also had, let's say, uh, alias, so to speak, April. I think there was some issues with the law, and I know that because 
my Aunt Mary, let me just say it like that, did everything that she could to keep Mary Alice from following in April's footsteps. Like I said, I was a couple years older than her. My youngest brother and her were very, very close. From my perception, and she was quiet from what I knew of her. And from what I can see as I look back at it, it almost appeared as though a lot of the kids in the neighborhood could never figure out how she got tied up with Mondo and, and Ed. But we've always tried to figure that out, too. Although being 14, in many ways, she resembled somebody who was much older and mature. Our thing was, Ed Poindexter lived two blocks from me. I would see Ed at least as a young person growing up in the neighborhood. I would see Ed at least four to five times a week. So I knew him very well. I also knew David Rice very well. I could be at their house because of his brother and my friendship. But I never knew where Dwayne Peak or Mary Alice had any connection to them. That was, and still is to me, the puzzle piece. At that point, to me, the police weren't really sure that Dwayne did that or even what Mary Alice's part was. All I know is that my aunt used to say that Mary Alice, she wanted to keep her away because she didn't want her walking the same in the same lane as April was. April was always in trouble, always shoplifting and that kind of thing. So, but I do know that Mary Alice used to sneak around with Dwayne Peak. To what degree I don't know. I just don't know how they were able to connect her and nobody was going to say anything. That's how they ran on the police department. It's our way or no way. Well, Dennis distinctly remembers that Mary Alice's older sister, Linda, was dating Ed Poindexter. And her brother, Ed, told us the same. We don't know exactly how Mary Alice fit into the equation, aside from possibly dating Dwayne Peake, who was younger than the other people involved. One point of interest that we aren't sure is related to Mary Alice's disappearance directly but could have been a compelling reason for the community to remain silent is this. Dwayne Peake was offered a plea in the juvenile court that allowed him to remain out of prison. Shortly thereafter, he and another relative left Omaha for a new home in another state, where he later changed his name. Could Mary Alice also have been whisked away for her own protection, despite not being involved in the criminal proceedings? If that is the case, and it's certainly a possibility, it seems like someone from her family would know. Even still, the factors that tie Mary Alice to all of this seem confusing. Another odd aspect of this is that Mary Alice never spoke of explosives, weapons, or talking to law enforcement, and no one in her family remembers her possibly having been called for an interview or having witnessed something that would have been very traumatic to a young teen. Maybe this was something Mary Alice was afraid to talk about, or feared getting in trouble for. 50 years ago, children weren't taught the same things they are today about reporting anything they may witness to a trusted adult. 
which makes Marialis's alleged contact with the ATF even more dubious. According to Marialis's brother Ed, their family had no clue that Marialis had allegedly spoken to the ATF until years later, when in 1997, Marialis's mother received a copy of that ATF affidavit. Marialis's grandniece Jennifer doesn't think that it's at all plausible that Marialis actually spoke to the ATF. They spelled her name incorrectly. That just really puzzled me. As far as like the first name, like Mary Ellis, I seen that the um, ATF agent spelled it that way. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. You know, that didn't make sense. And that also didn't make sense to my uncle. He's like, you know, he doesn't believe what he, you know, what the ATF agent is saying because he put my great aunt's name on the affidavit and it was wrong. Mary Ellis. You took words from a 12-year-old child without her adult, without her parental. It, it doesn't make sense. Why would she call the ATF? So she just has the ATF number in her back pocket? Like, come on now. Y'all, y'all got to make this make sense for us to believe that anything you're telling us besides the sky is blue. Because I wouldn't even believe that if you told me. Our skin has a huge effect on our confidence. If you have acne or noticing signs of aging, it can be frustrating to waste time and money on products that aren't formulated for you. That's why I recommend Curology. Curology makes personalized prescription skincare products. Curology's personalized prescriptions are formulated to treat your individual skin needs. They use a combination of three clinically researched ingredients, making it more effective than non-prescription cleansers and moisturizers alone. I tried it out myself and it's easy, and I can't wait to get my first box. Just fill out a quiz about your skin, share photos, and a provider will prescribe a personalized formula based on your skin's unique needs. For a limited time, you can get your first Curology skincare box for just $5. When you go to Curology.com vanished, go to Curology.com vanished for this free offer. That's Curology, C-U-R-O-L-O-G-Y dot com slash vanished. Trial is 30 days, applies to your first box, subject to consultation, new subscribers only. Let me guess, your medicine cabinet is crammed with stuff that doesn't work. You still aren't sleeping, you still hurt, and you're stressed out. That's how it was for me. So I cleared out my cabinet, and I'm excited to reset my health with CBD from CB Distillery. CB Distillery's targeted formulations are made from the highest quality clean ingredients. No fluff, no fillers, just pure, effective CBD solutions designed to help support your health. In two non-clinical surveys, 81% of customers experienced more calm. 80% said CBD helped with pain after physical activity and an impressive 90% said they slept better with CBD. If you struggle with a health concern and haven't found relief, make the change to CB Distillery. And with over 2 million customers and a solid 100% money-back guarantee, CB Distillery is the source to trust. I have a 20% discount to get you started. Visit cbdistillery.com and use code VANISHED for 20% off. That's cbdistillery.com code VANISHED. cbdistillery.com These events took place during the summer of 1970. The following April, Ed Poindexter and David Rice were tried and convicted. While Mary Alice was not involved in the criminal proceedings, her name has been forever tied to the case due to being named in that ATF affidavit. 
Then, something horrific happened just a few months prior to Mary Alice's disappearance. On May 28, 1972, Mary Alice called the police after escaping a violent sexual assault and an attempted second assault by two adult males. She bravely got away and immediately called local police from a neighbor's house. In the original police reports documenting these assaults, there's a portion of the report designated for details of the investigation and arrests to be documented. Tragically, it's blank. It appears that no one even conducted an investigation. There's no record of them talking to the two named assailants. And nothing is noted about any attempt to help Mary Alice, a teenage victim of a heinous, violent crime. A few months later, and two years after the bombing, Mary Alice vanished. We don't know if she ever told her family about the assaults, but we're left to wonder if they're related to her disappearance. The databases that do list Mary Alice as missing use the date August 1, 1972, but that's not necessarily the exact date that she disappeared. There are also reports that state that she was seen getting into a blue Chevy Impala with a friend near a neighborhood lounge, and that the car had Chicago, Illinois plates. But those type of plates didn't exist, specific to Chicago at the time. The reality is that we don't know when she disappeared, or if the story about the car is true, and neither, it seems, do the police. Mary Clark, Mary Alice's mother, filed the original missing persons report with the Omaha Police Department on September 25, 1972. The reporting officer asked her why she waited so long to report Mary Alice missing and Mrs. Clark told them that she kept hoping that Mary Alice would come home in a couple of weeks. When she didn't, Mrs. Clark called the police. After everything Mary Alice had been through, we can't blame Mary Clark for hesitating to call the police. This is what Jennifer said her perspective is on the delay in calling law enforcement. So I don't think my grandmother, my great-grandmother, was told anything. I'm not sure what they did tell her or or why she didn't, you know, look for her, or if she did look for her and was just told, oh, she, you know, she's a kid, she's a teenager, this is what they do, type of scenario. The police report refers to Mary Alice as a runaway, which was not uncommon at that time. But it appears little, if anything, was ever done to look for her. While Mary Alice may have been listed as a runaway, she certainly didn't run away for half of a century and this doesn't absolve the police of their obligation to look for a missing child. We have seen a pattern in other cases of missing children of color that we've covered, that often there's little questioning of the lack of police investigation, but much blame is laid at the feet of family members, like in this case for not reporting her missing right away. For Mary Alice's family, there could have been many reasons that her widowed mother was afraid to contact the police and remained hopeful that Mary Alice would return home. Mary Alice's mother died grieving the loss of her child and the lack of answers as to what happened to her. The emotions she must have felt at being almost completely ignored by law enforcement must have only made her grief a harder burden to carry. We asked Mary Alice's brother Ed what he remembers about the summer that Mary Alice disappeared. He told us that he doesn't remember the police investigating at all and that he and his mother spent countless hours going through the neighborhood. They asked friends of Mary Alice if they had seen her, stopping by places they'd known her to frequent. This is what he told us about when he believes Mary Alice disappeared. It was just like uh, suddenly we got up. She said, well, I'm going around. It was a girl that in the neighborhood, she 
hung around with off and on, and but she's passed now. But uh, she said, I'm going around the bumpers house, and that was the last we seen of her. I mean, we, we my mom called the police and everything, and you know, they just nonchalant about it. You know, uh, maybe she'll show up in a couple of days, and then she filed a missing person, and nothing was never done about that. They never followed up on that. She was reported missing. I don't know the exact date. Okay, here it, it said that uh, she had not been heard from. Uh, let's see, the said Mary Alice last was heard, seen, or heard from August the 20th, 1972. I uh, tried to get her on the uh, missing and exploited children thing, and uh, they told me I needed a police report. When I contacted the Omaha Police Department, they told me that they would have a detective call me, and which they did six months later. So then this was probably about, oh, probably about three years ago. The Witness Security Program, known by most as Witness Protection, was part of a law passed by Congress in 1970, two years prior to Mary Alice's disappearance. The goal of the program, operated by the United States Marshal Service, is to protect witnesses and their families, whose lives may be at risk due to their cooperation with authorities in major criminal court cases. When we spoke to Jennifer, she said that she's been told by family that Mary Alice was possibly in witness protection and has always questioned whether or not this was a possibility because of her alleged involvement in making a report to the ATF. I've heard that she was in witness protection. They didn't tell me, like, as far as where they just, like, she is in witness protection. They believe that she's in witness protection. And I'm like, but this doesn't make sense. Like, they can't do that with a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old, excuse me. They can't do that. They had to have talked to my great-grandmother, sat down with her and said, hey, your daughter got into some trouble, but this is what we're going to do. I was told that the last place that she was at that she was last seen at was the Valley High Lounge and she just disappeared. And I remember my mom telling me, and I'm like, that doesn't sound right. I'm like, what do you mean she just disappeared? And like, she just left. And I'm like, so nobody has seen her. She hasn't called. She hasn't done anything. And my mom's like, no, she's just disappeared. And I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And then again, I didn't hear later on until like about the ATS and, you know, Ed Poindexter until I was about, I want to say 21, 21, 22. And I'm like, but this still doesn't sound believable as far as her just disappearing because we come from a loving family. My great grandma, she loved her kids. And I don't see just Mary Alice just getting up and leaving because things aren't good at home. Jennifer told us that she wants to believe that Mary Alice is out there alive and happy. But with so much time having passed, that seems less and less likely. I want to believe that she's alive. So one scenario or one thing that I think possibly happened is that she just, she left. Maybe, you know, the police may have helped her. I don't, I don't know because it just, you know, with what I've read up until now, it doesn't seem like the police want to hold any responsibility or be accountable for what has happened. And that's nothing. So I feel like, you know, maybe she left with some assistance from the police or the ATS. 
dealing with, you know, that entire thing with the Black, the Black Panthers? I mean, just coming from, like, my family, they, we're strong, we're very strong-willed people, and we're very, you know, independent people, and I feel like my family, you know, I feel like that Mary Alice could have survived on her own. We don't know where she is. She doesn't know that we've been looking for her. If she's living a happy life with her kids and her grandkids and her great-grandkids, I don't think we want to disturb that, but we want to tell her that we haven't stopped looking for her. We didn't stop looking for her. And again, it stops here. We need answers. You know, if she's somewhere living her life, I, I think I'll probably speak for everyone that I'm speaking out of turn, then, you know, I'll, I'll apologize. But if she is somewhere living her life, I don't think any of us want to disrupt it. I just think we just want to know that she's okay. At the time that Mary Alice disappeared, the Witness Protection Program was still developing and operated primarily to protect witnesses in high-profile organized crime cases in New York City. Because we worked so hard to dig up the tiniest bit of information about Mary Alice, we considered it as a possibility ourselves. However, we were able to confirm with a Department of Justice official that Mary Alice is not in witness protection, and that if she had been, at least one adult family member would have been entered into the program with her. Dennis told us that sometimes he wonders if Mary Alice is out there alive somewhere, especially after receiving an unexpected message on social media. I used to think that it's possible she could be walking around here, but after all these years, people change. We wouldn't even know who she was. She could be living right here in Omaha, not communicating with her family. But how is it that young people can just disappear like that without parents' knowledge? Where I became more interested in this, I was on the internet one day, and someone named Mary Clark sent me a text message. My immediate response was to send that back and say, are you Mary Alice Clark, who was my cousin? And the lady sent something back saying no. But I almost thought that it was really her trying to reach out. I just thought that was interesting. It's important to me because right now I have Mary Alice's nephew. There's so many of her nephews and nieces that I'm sure she will want to know about. But the thing is, is whatever happened to her? I just don't believe her involvement was that great to where they had to remove her from this city. And then there's Mary Alice's niece, Chantel, who never got to meet her aunt. Chantel shared with us that she often thinks about her and what she might look like now if she's in the local area and would anyone recognize her. This was my thought for years, from like the time I was 15, 16 years old. I really thought that Mary Alice would surface when my grandmother died. That she was somewhere watching the obituaries in Omaha. And once she saw that my grandmother passed, she would show up. That was always my thought. And when she didn't, I was like, I was kind of disappointed. Like, dang, I thought that this would really be the time. I mean, not you could have did it before that happened, but that this would really be the time that you would show up if you didn't. And I mean, I would love to know what she could potentially look like now. Because it's like, I might walk right past her or something and didn't know. So that's, that's always been things that I would think of. 
Chantel told us that she remembers Mary Alice's mother, Mary, Chantel's grandmother, being devastated by not knowing what happened to her daughter, so much so that she often chose not to speak about her. It was very interesting growing up because you have this aunt that you know about, but that you've only seen pictures of. And my grandmother, she was always prepared, I guess, to leave if she got a phone call and go to see if it was Mary Alice, if they found her or whatever. So it was really difficult for me growing up because my grandmother said I looked so much like her and she didn't want anything to happen to me. So they kind of just had me a little sheltered. (laughs) But I heard the only things that I heard was that she walked away on a Sunday with um, a neighbor and she had not been into it with anybody like my mother or my grandmother or anything. She said she'd be back and she'd never return. I think that it really bothered her. I mean, once I became an adult and I could really see the significance and things of the disappearance, I think it really bothered her that there was never a body found. There was never any type of confirmation to say, hey, this is your love. This is your daughter. We found her. It it was just always, always that hope that she would return. I mean, my grandmother kept the same phone number for years. She never changed it. She never moved. She kept money to catch a train or a bus or a plane or whatever to wherever, you know, if she got a phone call or something, she was prepared. But I think it just made her sad. She really wouldn't talk about it a whole lot. But when she did, she would, you know, she would get tears in her eyes and she would cry. So then my grandmother, I guess she really, her being around me and nurturing me kind of took a little bit of that, I wonder where Mary Alice is at thing off the table, but Like I said, as I got older, I could see that it really bothered her that she didn't know where she was at. My mom, when I was growing up, I really don't remember her talking much about it until she started to be contacted by different people that wanted to talk to her about it. And then she would talk a little bit about it. But she's always been like, I don't know uh, enough about how she disappeared. I don't know if it was serious. So I really don't want to endanger my family by getting too deep into this the way the police did not handle the disappearance of my aunt. They didn't really do anything. They probably don't have anything. That's it. What you have, you don't want to let go. Shipping can make or break a sale. As your business grows, ShipStation can help optimize how you ship your orders so you can stay competitive while you scale up. With ShipStation, you can easily automate shipping tasks and manage orders in one simple dashboard. Manage orders, print labels, compare rates, optimize every shipment, and automate delivery notifications. ShipStation is the most affordable way to ship everything you sell online. They offer industry-leading discounted rates from USPS, UPS, DHL, and Global Post, with discounts up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. Over 130,000 companies have grown their e-commerce business with ShipStation. I tried out ShipStation, and I loved how easy it was to use. I was able to set it up quickly, and I was thrilled to see how much I saved on my first shipment. Optimize and keep your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Use promo code VANISH today at ShipStation.com to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com promo code VANISHED. When you love someone, you protect them in the best ways you can. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. It's an advanced system that protects every inch of your home and backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for fast emergency response for less than a dollar a day. 
I found their products so easy to install, and their app gives me peace of mind that I can see what's going on at my home wherever I'm at. Simply Safe is trusted by the experts. It was named Best Home Security Systems of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. Simply Safe offers everything you need for whole home protection. HD cameras for indoors and outdoors, advanced motion sensors and entry sensors to protect doors, windows, and rooms, and a collection of hazard sensors to detect fire, flooding, and more. Plus, with a 60-day risk-free trial, if you don't love your system, return it for a full refund. Simply Safe even covers return shipping. Order now to get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring. Don't wait. Visit simplysafe.com/mia. That's simplysafe.com/mia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. At this point in the story, it probably won't surprise you to learn that Mary Alice was not listed in any databases anywhere until a few years ago, when a fellow Nebraskan learned about Mary Alice's story. She took it upon herself to enter Mary Alice into NamUs, and also set out to find out if Mary Alice was entered into NCIC. We reached out to the FBI, who operates the Criminal Justice Information System, to find out who entered Mary Alice into NCIC and when. They referred us to the Nebraska State Patrol, who then referred us to the Omaha Police Department. We're still waiting on an answer to that, but believe that Mary Alice was entered into NCIC as a missing person for the first time in March of 2020 by the Nebraska State Patrol, after the same person who entered her into NamUs requested that she be entered. During our exhaustive research of this case, we also reached out to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children several times, including directly to people in positions of authority, to ask that Mary Alice be listed on their website, as she currently is not, which is a disturbing trend that we found in some other cases that we've covered, like Robert Smith, a teenager whose story we shared a few months ago. After several emails that went unanswered, Senior producer Rebecca Steinbach wrote back to us on October 13, 2021, and said the following regarding both Mary Alice and Robert's cases. Nick Mick doesn't have every missing child listed with us. We need either law enforcement or the child's legal guardian to call Nick Mick and request assistance. I don't know why we don't have Mary Alice's case, but she is currently not listed with Nick Mick. Robert Smith is listed with Nick Mick, but we need specific clearances for the poster to be on the website, and we don't currently have the clearance. We don't know what is meant by clearance to enter someone with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, but Robert's family told us that they've repeatedly asked to have him listed on the NICMIC website, and they've been given various reasons as to why he's not listed, and none of them seem to make much sense, including that Robert would be too old today to be listed. But strangely, two days later, a supervisor at the Omaha Police Department told us that Mary Alice had been entered. Shortly before this episode entered final production, a supervisor at the Omaha Police Department finally gave us a NCMEC ID number for Mary Alice, and we learned that Mary Alice was entered into NCMEC's database on October 15, 2021, 49 years and two months after she had vanished, and 37 years after the federal government established the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. We also learned that Ed had contacted Nick Mick several years ago, 
but they told him that there was no report on file with the police department. We still have not received an answer as to why it took months of us asking why she wasn't listed, and we never received a response about Robert Smith either. At the time that this episode was produced, Mary Alice was still not listed publicly, though she is very much a missing child. We have absolute proof that Mary Alice is missing. Two police reports filed with the Omaha Police Department, one by her mother in September of 1972, and one by her brother Ed just a few years ago, because no one could find the original report. We also have the petition that was filed with the Douglas County Court by her mother in 1980 to have Mary Alice declared deceased, listing her date of disappearance as August 20th, 1972. And yet, the Omaha Police Department won't give Mary Alice much more acknowledgement than Nick Mick. A supervisor with the police department wrote to us in an email response inquiring about the status of Mary Alice's case with the following. I have reviewed reports regarding Mary Alice Clark's absence and have discussed it with Sergeant Schrage multiple times. I am confident that he and his officers are working with the resources they have available to try to locate Mary Alice. We aren't so confident ourselves. Jennifer had a strong response to hearing that the police consider Mary Alice absent instead of missing. At this point, something needs to be done. Absent is when you don't show up to school for one or two days. Absent is not you've been missing since 1972. No, ma'am. That's not absent. That's missing. The fact that you're telling me that is making my blood boil more because what if it was your great aunt? What if it was your sister? What if it was your mother? What if it was your cousin? Would you not want these answers? And would you want somebody to call your family member, your great aunt, your auntie, your mother, your cousin, absent? Be honest with us and say, we don't, we don't want to do it. We don't feel like doing it. We, we don't have the resources. We don't know what happened. We dropped. We didn't even pick up the ball. We just put the case file over to the, over to the left and let it collect dust and put it in a box and let the box collect dust. Or you put the per report in the, in the trash and didn't even think twice about looking for her or helping our family. You just made us some bogus excuse that she, she called ATF. That's bogus to me. I wouldn't even know how to get in touch with ATF. It's ridiculous. You're wanting to help bridge this gap with the black community and, you know, you're here to listen, but if there's someone out there that is asking for you to listen, why aren't you listening? Because if the shoes were on the other foot, would you want somebody to look for your family member? My great-grandmother didn't have a voice, as loud as a voice as I had. My grandmother was a strong woman. She was one of the strongest women that I, I've ever met. And I know this load was heavy on her. But as her great-granddaughter and as, you know, a person who is not okay with things that happen like this to other people's families, it's happening within my own family. And I feel like we have no voice. It's not a good look for the chief of police to be ignoring us and you're on the news. You were just on the news helping other family members with cold cases. I think it was every Sunday they were doing a different cold case. But this is a frozen case. I do not want my great uncle to go or my great aunt to go or my father to go or my uncles to go and nobody know what happened. Sergeant Shraj stopped responding to our communications in August of this year after over a year of correspondence about his work on Mary Alice's case. He repeatedly told us that he was waiting on an address check at a home in Pennsylvania, 
That was the address listed on a social security application for Mary Alice's name and date of birth. He also told us that he had over 800 pages of documents to review in Mary Alice's case, but we've never gotten a response to our questions regarding what may be contained in the file, including important questions like what the follow-up was on Mary Alice's sexual assault by two men known to law enforcement. He asked us on multiple occasions to cover another missing young woman from the same time period, a white teenager whose killer confessed and died several years ago. When we met with Sergeant Shraj in person, he had that young woman's National Center for Missing and Exploited Children poster printed for us to take with us and asked if we'd be interested in covering her story, which we gladly would. However, we had made this trip to talk about Mary Alice, and it seemed like at every turn, nobody wanted to talk about Mary Alice Clark. We left that meeting without making much progress. We took the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children poster of the other teen with us, and we aren't sure if Sergeant Shraj is aware that Mary Alice doesn't have one herself. This is what Jennifer had to say when we told her about the meeting. When the people came to talk to you about my great aunt, you were able to give them the information about this Caucasian girl's family with no hesitation. So why are you so hesitant to give our family these answers? My great-grandmother deserves this. My great-uncle, who is still here, and my great-aunt, who is still here, they deserve answers. If you don't have any answers for us, help us get the answers. Stop trying to sweep it under the rug because we've done that already within our family. As a Black culture, we don't need that from the police department because we've lost something. Mary Alice has lost her life. Years of knowing her family, if she is alive, and knowing that we didn't or my great-grandmother didn't stop looking for her. It's the right thing to do. Like, let's take out race. It's the right thing to do. Let's take out that she's a black young girl who grew up in, in, in poverty. Her mother, you know, wasn't the richest. Let's take out all of that. It's integrity. Why would you not want this to show as the Omaha Police Department stepping up after a 41-year-plus case of a black young girl just gone missing? Why can't you just give us those answers? Have a heart. Your heart bleeds the same color as mine. You have to have a heart. You have to have some type of empathy and sympathy for us in showing that we don't have the answers. So my question to the detective, why isn't my great aunt important? And I would like to talk to him. Why wasn't there a photo of her or something of importance of her like, hey, let's get on this. I'm glad you're here. Why aren't you guys being welcomed to put our family at peace? or some type of closure, because I'm 35 years old, and I'm a different generation. And I don't understand if it was that detective's daughter, or his mother, or great aunt, like, you would want to know what happened. I just want to tell him, put yourself in our shoes. She didn't get to experience any of the things that I got to experience. And that's unfortunate. But she needs a voice. It just seems like Black women missing, there's no importance. They're Male, black males missing, there's no importance. And you guys are supposed to protect us. You're supposed to protect all genders and races. I wanted to be a police officer at one point in time. And then I grew up and seen that they really don't help us. We also filed numerous record requests over a 14-month period of time, which came with repeated denials citing a different reason each time, including one denial in which there was no denial reason listed only a blank template that said insert FOIA exemption. 
We appealed this decision, but were told, quite simply, no. Given the nature and circumstances of the correspondence from the police department, failing to cite any statutory or departmental policy barring records from being released, an attorney specializing in FOIA noncompliance has been retained to help us obtain answers. This is a recent development, and we'll keep you updated with any progress that's made. So while the supervisors at the Omaha Police Department may be confident in their work, we're confident that no one at the Omaha Police Department is using their resources to find Mary Alice, and so is her family. Jennifer told us that she hasn't ever gotten an answer back about the mysterious address check in Pennsylvania either, something that seems very simple for law enforcement to check out. Girl, I don't know what's going on with this police department, this wonderful police department we have here. When I had talked to you about um, somebody requesting her birth certificate in Pennsylvania, so I'm waiting to hear back to figure out, you know, what's going on as far as that Pennsylvania request for the birth certificate. There's never been anything where it's been, okay, we need some investigation done. We need a pinpoint of where she is because with the technology nowadays, I don't think it should be this difficult. Things were so messed up. And I just feel like it's, again, it goes back to, I feel like it's a cover-up. And so the crazy part about it is it doesn't make any sense. We need answers. That's, that's all I can say. Dennis shared his thoughts on what he believes may have happened and why law enforcement won't engage in a conversation about Mary Alice or even acknowledge her as more than absent. We always thought that Mary Alice was in Wyoming or Montana. How could you not remember and have a urge to want to pick up the phone and call somebody and say, hey, I know I disappeared, but I'm okay. How could you not? do that. We just have always thought that. Some people tell me, no, Womack, the police department here killed her. Because there are some people here who are doing investigative work just like you're doing, and they're concerned. They want to know whatever happened to Mary Alice. I'm sure all of her brothers and sisters want to know. I know a lot of the relatives would like to know. Even just to be able to see her, I know we were correct in that her disappearance, something just wasn't right about that. If you ask a Omaha, do they know about that? Many of them won't. You would have had to have been kind of closely related to any of the parties that are involved in this here. But most of the people would probably think that she's dead and that the Omaha Police Department or some other higher authority, I don't know if I want to say murdered her, but Somehow or another, she's just no longer with us. And just listening to you from your comments about your communication with Omaha Police Department, it almost seems like they're playing you because you're getting to some information that they don't want publicized. I think a lot of that is because they don't have the information to give back to you. Because if they divulge anything to you, then that opens up the can of worms that they're trying to keep contained. I push for a lot of resolving unsolved homicides in Omaha. I'm constantly critical of the county attorney, as well as the Omaha Police Department and their investigative skills, which seemingly are lacking. But 
we got a long way to go here. The one thing I've noticed in this town is that people here do think they're above reproach and that you can't ask them questions. And I think that systematically here at the Omaha Police Department has had that luxury for many, many years, even going back to William Brown when we allowed protesters to come into the city jail and take a guy out of that and the sheriff hands them the keys to open the the cell and take him out. I've always thought that. I, I go back to the day that George Wallace came to Omaha, how the police were in collusion with him and his vile message. It was just unreal. Since his days as a much younger activist, first during his exile to California, and then after his return to Omaha, Dennis has retired from a successful government career and continues to dedicate his time advocating for positive change in Omaha. His desire to find out what happened to his missing cousin has fueled his dedication to remain active in community service and petitioning for meaningful change. In this vein, Dennis told us that he doesn't believe that the police department has changed much since the unrest in the 1970s and expressed skepticism that we would make any progress with the police department. At the time of our interview with Dennis, we had no idea just how right he was about that. I don't know how far you're going to get with them, but people are finding now that some departments have made mistakes and they come back and they offer up some monetary value amount and people are okay. I do believe that police do have to pay for their mistakes. However, if you continue to cover it up, it only gets worse. I think that's what they're doing when they scramble. It's just totally ineffective and inadequate police work that we're doing here. Um, Because I believe this police department has always lived on the concept that nobody can approach them and get any information that they're above or approach. And, and I just think that that's a bad way to police. Now, we have a new police chief here. Now, not to say that they're going to be a little more open. There might be a little better, let's say transparency might be a little bit better now. This new chief that we have, he's come out and said, even our county attorney has said things like, Oh, don't bring me uh, marijuana cases here. But how it doesn't resonate with the patrols out here, as we've been collecting data here, it says that every time they stop a young Latino or a young black man, the first question is, or the first statement that the police make is, huh, I smell marijuana. As they're approaching, that's the first thing they say. Just another way to avoid profiling is what that basically is. Omaha Strange, and I just wrote something the other day on Facebook because we started witnessing, got over 40 unsolved homicides primarily in one particular area here in the city of Omaha. County attorney says he can't solve them because the community doesn't give them any information. The community also will not accept payment for those information because they don't want to be uh, saddled with the moniker of of snitching. And the police is okay with that. I always thought that when you solve your 
unsolved homicide that shows your ability to truly police to continuously say oh you know because your community won't get involved in it we won't do this any further uh we won't investigate any further because it's y'all's fault y'all not helping us all of that we really need right now is is proof and evidence there's no time for excuses anymore and if any wrongdoing occurred, then we need to find that out as well. Uh, we're we're living in times to where I think that transparency is real important right now. People need to know. There has to be some kind of closure to it because right now it's just too open and it's been open for years. I, I just hope that you kind of get some cooperation. Unfortunately, in the end, we got no cooperation from the police department. It appears to us that no one is looking for Mary Alice. No one cares to, and to be frank, we got the impression that everyone we spoke to hoped that we would go away. But we didn't go away, and we'll continue to push for answers. It took us nearly 15 months to bring you this story, because we had to go to Omaha and Lincoln, Nebraska to search through old newspapers and microfilm. We walked through cemeteries, met with police, visited vital records— and filed an open records request with the Social Security Administration. We did all of that in three business days in the midst of a pandemic. But we're still waiting for that promised address check on a house in Pennsylvania that the police department told us they got a tip on regarding someone using Mary Alice's name and date of birth in the summer of 2020. At a time when missing persons are at the forefront of the national conversation, especially missing young women, we think it's important to highlight a few points about Mary Alice's case. Mary Alice had just turned 14 a few months before she disappeared. She had been the victim of a sexual assault, escaped, and called the police. She gave police the names of her attackers, but they were never investigated. We have copies of those reports. When we asked the police about that earlier this year, they asked us if we would be able to track down the addresses these people might currently be living at. Prior to the production of this episode, we spoke privately with Mary Alice's family about the sexual assaults. They had never heard about this before, and no one from the police department ever mentioned it to her mother before or after her disappearance. Mary Alice was also a victim of the federal government's no-holds-barred attack on the civil rights movement and the actions of the Black Panthers. Even if she had actually reported seeing weapons and explosives to the ATF at 12 years old, why was that information made public? Did that put her life in danger? In the few reports that we do have, information about Mary Alice is consistently incorrect, like her name and date of birth. The reports reflect that police didn't care about her then, just as they don't appear to now. Mary Alice is a missing child, she deserves to be found as much as any other missing child. She has a family, with many relatives who passed away without ever knowing. But more importantly, her case deserves the attention any missing child's case is given. Whatever happened to Mary Alice, it seems likely that she didn't choose to disappear. So what happened to Mary Alice Clark in August of 1972? We know from records that she was a real person, with a real family, who wants to know what happened to her. We believe that it's unlikely that she actually gave the testimony sworn to in the ATF affidavit, or even was aware of the investigation taking place. We know that she was not ever placed in witness protection, and we also know that there is no record of her death on file with the state of Nebraska's Vital Records Division, 
or the Social Security Administration? Is it possible that she's alive and someone hid her for her own protection after the explosion took place, sending two men to prison for life? Did someone want her dead? If so, why would someone have wanted to kill her? At the time of her disappearance, Mary Alice Clark was 14 years old. According to the original missing persons report, she was 5 foot 3 inches tall at the time of her disappearance and weighed approximately 120 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. If you have any information about the disappearance of Mary Alice Clark, we hope that you will reach out to a law enforcement agency. We would usually recommend the Omaha Police Department or the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, but we can't in good faith ask people to call agencies who are not interested in resolving this case. That said, any law enforcement agency can take a tip, and if you have information, please share it with someone. You can follow Mary Alice's case on Facebook by joining the Finding Mary Alice Clark Facebook group. Something, again, is not adding up. And with everything going on in the world, like I said, I've always, since I've known about it, I've always put this in the back of my mind, like, I want to know what happened. And like Congressman John Lewis said, there's nothing wrong with making trouble, good trouble. And I'm so for it because I, my family needs to know, my uncle needs to know what happened to his sister. Someone has to know something. And Beatrice, who was on the missing person's report, she's no longer alive. Somebody has to know something. With Valley High Lounge, back then, it was a hot spot. You know, a lot of people like to hang around there. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like someone sees something, someone knows something. I lost my aunt on my mom's side. Her and her son were murdered. He got found not guilty so for both murders, even though they had the DNA evidence and everything. And I just feel like I have to raise my voice somewhere. And I feel like with Mary Alice's disappearance, this is exactly where it needs to be. I know that they should be interested in this, not just for here, but from a national standpoint, they should want to know because this isn't the only case where something like this has happened. And this isn't the only state that this has happened in. Uh, we're talking about inclusion and diversity in everybody has the right to be assisted. So yeah, I, I, you can't put boundaries out there anymore. That brings us to the end of episode 313. I'd like to thank everyone who spoke with us for this story. Special thanks to Justin from The Generation Y for assisting us with this episode by reading that affidavit. If you have a missing loved one that you'd like to have featured on the show, there's the case submission form at thevanishedpodcast.com. If you'd like to join in on the discussion, there's a page and discussion group on Facebook. I'm on Twitter at The Vanished Pod and also on Instagram. If you enjoy this show, subscribe now and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Do you want to help support the show? There are a couple things that you can do. 
One way to help The Vanished is by supporting our sponsors. You can find links and promo codes in the episode notes. Another way to support the show is by contributing on Patreon, where you can get early and ad-free episodes. Be sure to tune in next week. We'll be revisiting a case that we previously covered from Ohio. Thanks for listening. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Vanished ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.